I know I'm not gonna get eaten Me by a silverfish. That's not the concern. <laughs> or carpet beetles. Although once you die, all all fucking all all bets off the table. Well, once I die, that's fine. I want to be decomposed. I've said that many times. <laughs> yeah, turn me into a goddamn tree. Yeah. Well, no. I want the mushroom suit. I don't I don't need to be a tree I, as long as I'm in the carbon cycle. Oh, I do like the idea of a mushroom suit. Yeah. Also, like, take Tree it seems like a tall order. Oh my god, we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I can start. Hi, this everybody. is Science and Podcast, and that's how I want to die. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how medicine keeps that in or doesn't. Uh, oh yeah, I'm editing, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, noises. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Science and Podcast brought to you by Science and Pictures Magazine. We can start the episode like that. Yeah. Yeah. Karen and Georgia do it. Who? Karen and Georgia with My Favorite Murder. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. And that's exactly the kind of podcast we're trying to be. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just a murder comedy podcast. Murder comedy? Mm-hmm. Murder comedy. Yeah, that defines science. You gotta listen to it. Mm-hmm. Real good. Absolutely. Oh, I will. That's Speaking of listening, welcome back! <laughs> <laughs> it's Madison, guys. And, and, she, and she's sorry. I'm sorry. And also, here is um, another one. I'm Jared, but I'm not as sorry. Yes, Jared is unapologetic. <laughs> um, and we are here to take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. So we have a brand new, fresh off the presses, scientific article for you. You know what we're going to do. We're going to break down the jargon. We're going to make it fun and digestible, and we're also gonna, you know, some some fun facts, rabbit holes, mm-hmm. and jokes. Which, by the way, was a tall fucking order uh, for this episode, because this was the longest paper I've ever read of any any scientific category. It was so long, and they had to present so much evidence that they made a point, several points throughout the paper to say, look at the supplementary material, because we could not fit everything inside this already book-long paper. Good lord. Yeah. That does not bode well for me. Or you, listeners. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't scare him away. You should probably turn it off now. The, uh. <laughs> the point of that was that I read the paper and you don't have to, so you're yes. welcome. This is what we do for you. It takes us hours, days to get through these scientific tomes, and then we break it down for you in like 45 minutes. Yeah, we're not fucking scientists. We just like reading science. Yeah, so now that we've tooted our own horny horns, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to make it like cuter by adding a Y and I made it terrible. I feel like the, I feel like the thing of it's not just push forward. So just keep just, going. Just keep just going. Just All right. Through. What are we talking about? Oh, uh, good good call. Uh, the paper I brought for us this week presents the results of a five-year-long deep dive into the astronomical literature, reaching all the way back in time to the published works of Mr. Galileo Galilei himself. In doing so, Mr. it... GG. Mr. GG. In doing so, it sheds new light on a rather controversial and, as it turns out, entirely unscientific decision made by the International Astronomical Union made back in 2006. Big scientists do not science? Big scientists do not science. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the decision of which uh, was the one that stripped Pluto of its planetary status in the eyes of the general public. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Yep. This is... This is a saga that touched my childhood deeply. I remember being so angry for Pluto. Like, how could Pluto they do this to them? Pluto was my favorite planet. And now I learned that I was justified in my anger. <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. So this paper uh, will... It actually hasn't even been published yet. I don't know how I was, I was able to... How'd you get um, it? I, it's on their website. Just it's going to appear in the March 1st issue. 
of their <laughs> journal. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Yep. Pluto vindicated. Pluto vindicated. Uh, Science and, that- and podcast exclusive. <laughs> it is exclusive. And that peer review journal is uh, Icarus. Icarus? Mm-hmm. Flew too close to the sun. Indeed. Apt name for an astronomy journal. Very much. Yeah. Very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the title of the paper, Moons Are Planets. Scientific usefulness versus cultural teleology in the taxonomy of planetary science. Moons are planets. Mm-hmm. Bold statement. Bold statement. Can indeed. they back it up? Can they? Uh, well, first, uh, let's take a little bitty detour because I think we forgot to do the fun fact corner. <gasps> oh yeah, you're right. Well, usually we introduce the article, then we do the fun fact corner, and then the dragon corner. That is true. I think this article just took a lot of introducing. It did. It did. It's a monumental one. Mm-hmm. Monumental. Astronomically important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's your fun fact? Oh, well. um, okay, wait. So I, while I was trying to do research for my next article, sometimes like the the news flashes that pop up on Fizz and Eureka Alert just aren't interesting to me. And so yeah. then I go into the search bar and just start typing words that interest me. <laughs> so one of the words that I typed um, was fish, which I shouldn't have done. And that's why I'm not going to do this article because we do way too many articles about fish. Yeah. But I learned something new about archer fish. Really? Yes, I learned that, so archer fish are a fish that are able to shoot a stream of water out of a river and hit a bug with, like, extreme accuracy and then, like, eat the bug. We already know this. Oh, also their eyes are basically, like, split down the middle as far as, like, composition because their eyes have to be halfway out of the water and able to uh, be, be able to pinpoint where that insect is because of the distortion of the light from under the water. They're it's so cool. Fish. They're it's so, so cool. cool. So cool. Um, but what I learned about them is that if another archer fish is watching them, they will re-aim much more. They'll, like, take a lot more time before they shoot the bug out of the water. And the way they phrased it in, like, the tagline of the article was, like, they get shy. But, of course, that's not the real reason. (laughs) That's anthropomorphizing. Mm -hmm. The real reason is that they are being strategic because, well, at least that's what these scientists think. They're being strategic because they're worried that the other archer fish might steal the bug that they shot out of the air. So, like, basically, they put all of this effort into getting the bug, and then that other fish would steal it. So if they see another fish, they're like, no, let me reposition so that I make sure I can get this bug first. Oh, I love it. They're, like, checking their work and checking it twice. Yeah, they're like, "Uh, you look like a sneaky motherfucker (laughs) (laughs) over there, and I am not going to let you steal my thunder. What a fun, fun fact. Right? They're more like us than we could have possibly imagined. Yes, they are. Love Although it. I did like the image of them being like, oh, oh, God, you're watching me? Oh, no. Okay, let me make sure I get this right. Like, that was fun for me. And who knows? Someone's going to make a TikTok in that vein at some point. I hope so. Maybe even you. Maybe even me. Coming <laughs> soon to Science and Podcast TikTok. If we have to make one. We will. At some point. Yeah, at some point. Few years. It's a decade down the line. Yeah. What's uh, your fun fact, Jared? My fun fact came from uh, my research uh, in which I came to terms with something I was taught in the fourth or fifth grade. Um, you know Copernicus, right? Copernicus. Good old Niccolo Copernico. Uh, I didn't know he had a first name. Um, <laughs> something about the earth is round and goes around the sun. So he was uh, the first one, uh, basically, in popular culture to champion the idea that uh, the geocentric model of the universe, uh, with Earth being at the center of our solar system, was false. And it's actually the sun. Um, The first guy to say, hey, it doesn't revolve around us. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) In effect, yes. I Um, I wonder if he was, like, kind of sad. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I learned uh, in my education, uh, public school education, that he was burned at the stake by the Catholic Church uh, for, for asserting this. Which <laughs> He literally said, we're not the center of the universe, and they were like, die in fire. Now, here's the thing. 
the Catholic Church fought fucking hard against the adoption of uh, the sun as as the center of of our solar system, and yeah, also they do they a did. lot of it's other. It's supposed to be God and the Pope. Exactly. <laughs> so I will say that I think I had grounds to believe this. Oh, so it didn't um, happen. Didn't happen. He died oh. of a stroke. Oh, oh, oh. Well, I mean, I guess I'm happy for him. Yeah. That's I'm, that's less painful. But... Yeah, I, I guess I'd rather die of a stroke. Uh, I have died neither way, so who am I to say? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I just want a mushroom suit. Yeah. But that's after death. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know what's have funny you thought is about, it... like, your ideal way to die? Yeah. When I turn 70 or so and my brain starts to go, I'm going to skydive into an active volcano. Oh, so you're going to go, like, sort of like Viking funeral yourself? Oh, yeah. All right. I don't want to experience the whole cognitive decline thing. That, I mean, that horrifies yeah, me. the weakening of the... Mm, it's it's scary, although yeah. we are very young people speaking about it. Who this knows? Maybe life is very worth living, even with those detriments. But, me personally, <laughs> I've always thought I would like to, like, maybe, like, be eaten by an animal. <laughs> hopefully, like, an, hopefully an animal that kills you first. I mean, like, if Can you it's imagine, super like... I mean, it might be super painful, and I'm kind of fine with that, but I just feel like it would be... It would be right. <laughs> It would be the easiest way for me to re-enter the carbon cycle without having to worry about my family paying for an expensive mushroom suit. Interesting. But I don't want the animal to be blamed. Like, I want it to be a secret. <laughs> like, I just... Ideally, I'm, like, in my 80s, and I'm living on the outskirts of some village in, like, a cabin, and everyone thinks I'm a witch, and then one day I just disappear, and nobody knows it was a bear. It's just, like, me and the bear who know. What a fascinating look into Madison's head. Anyway. <laughs> that is... <laughs> so Copernicus That's fun. That's a fun fact. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I'm glad I'm still learning about you at this point in our friendship. <laughs> and so are you, hundreds of strangers. Uh, anyway. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to jump into the jargon corner? Yes, I am. The jargon mm-hmm. corner is when we go back to the article and we pull out the confusing words and make them make sense. So, yeah. Sharon, make it make sense. So, Madison, uh, the first term uh, that you are going to guess what it means first, because that's also how, how we do things. The first one that goes first is... Taxonomy. Oh, taxonomy. That's scientific classification. Yes, I uh, was hoping that you would talk about its uh, use in biology, which is where it's the most popular. But uh, yeah, you were right on the money. Taxonomy is just uh, the name... The naming of things. The naming of things, exactly. In a science way. Mm -hmm. Uh, In biology, that would be the naming of organisms and classifying them based on their inferred evolutionary relationships. But again... In Latin, in that King Philip came over for that good soup. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, So like Madison alluded to... Uh, This process of naming and classification actually occurs in all branches of science, every single one. Um, And recent developments in cognitive science actually reveal that taxonomy and the development of those taxonomical concepts are integral to our use and understanding of the scientific method itself. Huh. It's just... I mean, yeah, it's the language we use to talk about the things. Exactly. That's Uh, how we need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it all has to do with this creating of a mental model of the natural world, uh, beginning with observations and pattern identification of some aspect of that natural world. Uh, scientists will go on to create that, that mental model of what they're studying, which consists of nouns uh, like planet or plant or fish uh, that, that are sorted into those taxonomies. People, places, things, mm-hmm. yes. And verbs like orbit or grow or eat, uh, which become the theories uh, about what those nouns do. Actions, behaviors. Exactly. Hypotheses about these nouns and verbs, those taxonomies and theories, are formed, and the testing of those hypotheses serve to refine those taxonomies and theories. Yeah. Eventually, leading into uh, more informed predictions that through further testing, 
you see how this is kind of going, going for a circle, mm -hmm. uh, paves the way towards new observations and identification of those patterns within. We name the things, we make sure we named them right. Uh, if we didn't, we rename them, and then we find the things that are related to them, and it keeps on going. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, not so coincidentally, this process mirrors the manner in which our own minds are actually organizing and sorting through, through, Wouldn't through, you through know that data. It. The way we understand the world is the way that we understand the world. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it seems a matter of fact the way you put that, but I really enjoy that. Oh, thanks. Um, as the authors put it, uh, I'm quoting the paper now, our minds organize empirical data into taxonomical concepts that are aligned with theory. And those taxonomies organize our efforts to abductively, that's making inferences based on what we've learned, mm -hmm. uh, create and evaluate new hypotheses leading to better theory. <laughs> Thus, the taxonomical concepts and the theories co-evolve. Taxonomy is not limited to science. Oh, um, really? Uh, yeah. Taxonomy and taxonomical concepts are utilized not just by scientists, but by humans in general in everyday cognition as well. Oh, yeah. Like, it's our, you know, how we form concepts, which are concepts that inform how we see the world, and it keeps on going and rolling into a big snowball. Exactly. Called the brain. <laughs> exactly. Now, according to cognitive scientists, everything our human brains do, everything, is what's known as theory-laden, or influenced by preconceived notions, beliefs, biases, and more. Yes, that's what I would call concepts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, this tends to result in the theory-laden taxonomies formed through the scientific method to be quite different from the theory-laden taxonomies of the general public. Yes, which are very known much so. exactly, and those are known as what's called folk taxonomies. I think, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the main difference is science is aware of confirmation bias and actively tries to go against it. That's a very big part of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, take also, for example, the way that scientists and the general public view uh, the concept of fruits and vegetables. <laughs> yeah. So the public sorts fruits and vegetables into different uh, taxonomical categories because of the inherent value that humans place on eating. And so we need taxonomical concepts to sort and discuss foods in this way. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, to plant biologists, fruits and vegetables merge into the single category of fruit. Yep. And because they're, <laughs> exactly, because they're not defined by the eating experience, but by their role as reproductive organs of the plant that they grow from. Yes, the culinary definitions are different from the scientific definitions. Exactly. That's why the whole tomatoes are a fruit thing was such a... It's dumb. Yeah, I mean, culinarily <laughs> speaking, they are a vegetable, and scientifically speaking, they are a fruit, and so is every other vegetable, pretty much, except for, like, broccoli, because that's leaves. Exactly. The plant biologist values taxonomies and theories that allow them to explore the ecology and behavior of, of those plants they study. And so the folk taxonomy of fruit is ignored in the pursuit of this actual knowledge. Yep. Now... In the case of the folk and scientific taxonomies of fruits, they can and do coexist without issue. Because the folk taxonomy of fruit does not in, doesn't hinder or delegitimize the scientific taxonomy in any way. Unless you're a tomato purist. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, but the very discussion of, of, of these conceptual differences offer a teachable moment for the public to learn more about that science. Or at least it could. It could, in theory. Mostly but, people just yell at each other on the internet about tomatoes. This is true. That's why we stay off that. Yeah. Except for this. Except for, <laughs> I've said the word tomato like six times as you've been defining this. Hey, tomato, tomato. But oh. in, <laughs> in cases where the scientific and folk taxonomies do conflict, scientists have always fought hard to push the public towards the scientific interpretation and, and on, on, on understanding. Which the public adamantly resists. Eventually, they usually come around. But, oh, really? Uh, That's comforting, Well, yeah, actually. I mean, take, for example, the folk taxonomy of, of the term fish. Uh, mm -hmm. While at one point, uh, fish in the, the eyes of, of the general public meant anything that lives in the water, yep. uh, the public has now largely, not completely, but largely come to accept the more complicated and nuanced scientific taxonomy. 
Whales, for example, are now widely regarded by, by the public not as fish, but marine mammals, mm -hmm. which in effect shows the infusion of scientific understanding into popular culture, and paving the way for a better grasp of the awesome complexity of life on our blue planet. In a lot of cases, people do come around. Okay. Um, on, on the flip side, though, of this uh, com com competing taxonomies, scientists must also keep in mind that they are no more or less human than the general public. And Facts. being a scientist... They really do need to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. always like, I am purely objective. I'm a scientist. Oh, we will see just how wrong, no, wrong that is later. No, you're not. And being a scientist in no way prohibits them from being led astray by the very same cognitive biases and shortfalls that non-scientists fall victim to. Facts. Mm-hmm. For as long as the scientific taxonomy of certain terms, like, say, planet, differ from the folk taxonomy, mm -hmm. there remains a chance that folk taxonomy can silently work its way into the scientific literature as well. Oh, it sure can. A little bit of foreshadowing there. Oh, we foreshadowed. Mm -hmm. Our next piece of jargon is the Copernican Revolution. The Copernican Revolution. So that must have been the time when Copernicus was like, hey, guess what? We're not the center of the universe. And everyone was like, what the fuck? Yes. More importantly, it was the uh, years that came after that. And what years were they? The Copernican Revolution was a major paradigm shift in the field of astronomy, beginning around the late 1500s uh, to early 1600s. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So the Tudor era. That's interesting. Uh, sure. Very bloody time in English history. A lot okay. of arguing about the semantics of different types of the same religion for politics. Anyway, continue. Oh, that, 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 uh, that's interesting you mentioned that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, this was a shift that Mr. Niccolo Copernico himself initiated. Although uh, he would unfortunately not live to see this shift take hold of astronomy in earnest, having died of a stroke in 1543. Uh, R.I.P., buddy. Yeah. Uh, although, with the shift, the scientific community started to finally embrace the reality that it is not Earth at the center of our planetary neighborhood, but the Sun. Mm -hmm. And so the so-called heliocentric solar system model took hold uh, to replace the old and outdated geocentric one. Yep. Mm -hmm. It sure did. How long did that take? A couple hundred years. Yeah. They spent a lot of uh, time arguing. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and, like, we only just started saying, like, if it doesn't have a backbone, it's not a fish, like... Probably like a, a couple hundred years ago. Oh yeah, it so. takes it, it it takes a lot of time. Generations, people live and die <laughs> on many hills. <laughs> oh, so many hills. Yeah. All right, we got two more jargons left. Okay. The next one is the IAU or the International Astronomical Union. Oh, I guess maybe those are the people who all decide what's what out there. Pretty much. Like, uh, maybe NASA's a member, and then also whatever NASA is for other countries. I would argue that there are some NASA scientists that might be members of, of the IAU, but not NASA itself. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm literally spitballing. I've never heard of it. Oh, no, you're <laughs> You're pretty close, though. Uh, the IAU is an international assemblage of professional astronomers, whose stated mission is to promote and safeguard the science of astronomy in all its aspects. Oh, wow. Big mission. Mm -hmm. Including research, communication, education, and development through international cooperation, primarily through the organization of scientific meetings. So the IAU has actually been pretty much globally regarded as the authority on the naming and sorting of celestial objects ever since its foundation in 1919. Oh, wow. Yeah, they've been around for a while. And the last up in the jargon corner is the historical presentism fallacy. Wait, hold on. Historical presentism fallacy. To me, that sounds like a theory that would say when we think we're in the present, we're not. Conceptually, kinda, is what Please I will say to that. 
on. So historical presentism occurs when modern ideas and, and perspectives are incorrectly believed to have existed far earlier in history than they actually appeared. Oh, okay. Like people, yeah. It's the same thing when you enter a conversation. You always generally assume the person you're talking to knows the same things that you do. When we're looking back on our own history, we assume that people probably knew the stuff that we think is basic, but they did not. Exactly. Um, an example of this fallacy would be the assumption that Americans have pretty much been on board with the whole evolution thing for almost a century now. Nope. Uh, when in reality, the American public was all but evenly split on the issue as recently as 1985 and for at least two decades afterwards. As recently as 2008 in Michigan, hey yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's where I'm from. Um, um, I should note here that perhaps a more common use of the term presentism is when we tend to judge historical figures by modern moral standards, but oh, yeah. that is not the subject or goal of this paper, so we I will, will continue to do that. I will, also continue, I will also continue to do that, but yeah. that's not what we're, uh, you know, going by in this paper. This is about planets, exactly. not people. Exactly. exactly. And with that, we're going to jump into this paper. All right. Whew. All right. Let me just get my wiggles out. <laughs> some jiggles, some jiggles, some wiggles. Okay. Go we go ahead. now to the early 2000s. When astronomers of the Minor Planet Center, uh, a facility commissioned by the IAU to catalog smaller celestial objects, it's actually stationed right near Madison and I in Cambridge, Mass., which is cool. Cool, let's go there sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they were doing just that. They were classifying uh, minor celestial objects. Um, the Minor Planet Center has always named the objects it, it discovered in accordance with the IAU's rules for comets and asteroids. But this created a problem in 2003, uh, when a celestial body, codenamed 2003UB313, was discovered uh, and was actually quite close in size uh, to the planet uh, we used to know as Pluto. Oh. Yeah. The problem she's was... She's coming for your spot, Pluto. She's coming for the spot. Defend yourself. <laughs> the problem was whether this Pluto-sized KBO, or Kuiper Belt object... Should... <laughs> what, what? Kuiper Belt is where it was discovered. Kuiper Belt. Yeah. Kuiper Belt. There was an astronomer named Kuiper. Kuiper. I think he discovered the belt. No offense to any Kuipers out there. I mean, my, <laughs> my last name is Dix, so who am I to talk? But I, I find that silly. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little bit silly. Uh, but the problem was was basically if the if the uh, new object should be named and classified as a new planet uh, or in accordance with the uh, asteroid slash comet rules. Pluto itself was actually discovered in 1930 at a time when asteroids were still considered planets in the astronomy taxonomy. Oh wow! Mm -hmm. Really? Yep. And because of this timing, uh, a process for determining whether ambiguous celestial bodies should be classified as planets or or not was never actually created. Oh. Mm-hmm. The IAU leadership decided that this issue must be rectified before any sort of formal name would be given to UB313. Okay, and that was in the early 2000s. Yes, uh, there was a couple parts before that, though. So the first step towards a formal planet definition came in, in 2004 uh, with the IAU's formation of a working group of astronomers with the goal of forming and deciding on one. Always a working group. Always a working group. I hate working groups and task forces. <laughs> Uh, you're gonna hate this one too because they failed. Uh, they were ultimately <laughs> they were ultimately unable to agree on one. Curiously, Madison, this failure was due to aspects that were related to social and cultural issues rather than about the science. Yeah, I know. I believe it. Working groups and task forces never go well because no, they people they they will never be able to come to a decision. They're just corporate stalling techniques, although that doesn't apply here. Not necessarily. But that's my opinion. <laughs> so that's that on that. So in early 2006, the IAU leadership tried again, uh, with an additional effort to address those social and cultural issues with the formation of the Planet Definition Committee, the PDC. 
Including not just astronomers, but educators, science communicators, writers, and historians as well. Oh Mm -hmm. my gosh, they included us? They did. They did. Uh, I take everything back. I take it back. Well, don't take it back yet. Okay. Uh, This committee would present their definition proposal at an upcoming General Assembly meeting, after which the Assembly would decide on a formalized definition by vote, representing the first in a series of very bad decisions. Oh. You don't decide on science by vote. No. People associate voting with fairness and equality and democracy, which all are good things, but as evidenced by the American political system, very often voting can become a popularity contest where people really don't know the facts and it's more of a gut decision. That's exactly what happened here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. So, oh my God. Uh-huh. Pluto, we're getting revenge for you, baby. I, I'm so sorry that just this wait. happened to you. There's... You just needed to get a better PR team. Madison, there's so much tea I still have to spill. Oh, gosh. Okay. Here we go. After the establishment of the Planet Definition Committee, uh, this was the next bad decision, the IAU leadership decided to violate its own bylaws and working rules by directing that committee to keep all their discussions secret and unannounced to anyone. (laughs) Normally, proposals to be presented at general assemblies are required to both be circulated throughout all of the IAU's members at least four months in advance and published on the IAU website for all to see. This way, all participating parties would have ample time to look over that proposal and discuss it beforehand in the hopes of reaching a very broad consensus. But instead, they were like, you know what would make democracy work better? No transparency. Secrecy. (laughs) Um, So they did have a reason behind this. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I am not on their side right now. Sorry, I'm not either. Sorry, Um, France. Uh, Wait, no, wait. International member. (laughs) Sorry, France. For real this time. The leadership's reasoning for bending its own rules was due to the widespread cultural relevance surrounding planets. They maintained that if made public before the assembly, there would be, quote, strong media interest to pressure and influence the decision-making process. And so, up until the general assembly began, the only ones who knew about this upcoming definition proposal were the IAU leadership and the members of that planet definition committee. Oh, top secret. Now... The definition that the PDC proposed uh, to the assembly when the assembly began and everyone learned that they existed uh, was one that favored (laughs) geophysical characteristics like elemental composition and tectonic activity over dynamical ones uh, relating to movement and orbit. To which the dynamicist subcommunity of astronomers reacted with genuine anger. I feel like I'm a dynamicist. Hold on. Ron Eckers, the IAU's director at the time, vividly recalls one dynamicist saying, and I quote, If you don't include the clearing of the orbit, you have insulted half of the planetary science community. Insulted. You tell them. Insulted. You read them, baby. That is loaded fucking language in a scientific debate. I love it. I'm here for the drama. Maybe some popcorn. Like... So this influx of strong emotion is exactly the sort of thing that should be avoided in scientific discussion. Oh. As it not... <laughs> Go on. As it only strengthens the chance that cognitive biases of all kinds will enter that debate as well. Yeah, I just branded myself a dynamicist and I don't even know who I'm aligning myself with <laughs> just because there's drama. So case in point well, right there you here. Go. There you go. Nonetheless, this is the outcome that the PDC's initial secrecy set the stage for, when its presence was finally revealed on the second day of that General Assembly. Nobody likes being blindsided. Mm-hmm. So, in response to this perceived slight on the dynamicist sub-community by the IAU leadership, a group led, mainly by them, met to create their own definition and force it through to a vote. 
Now, here's uh, more problems, uh, because proposal making during the assembly itself is also prohibited by IEU rules. But the leadership effectively legitimized this new group's uh, actions by doing absolutely nothing to stop them. <laughs> How very petty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> After more debates, the 400 members remaining at, at the, the assembly at this point, almost none of which being geophysical astronomers, uh, basically the other half of that planetary science community. They, they just didn't, didn't care. They just left. It's not that they didn't. It is that they didn't care. Uh, the things that they find interesting and, and the things that they talk about planets are not talked about at these meetings. And also, that because it wasn't made public, they could not have known how important it would have been to be there. Uh, oh. They just oh, didn't know. Oh, so they weren't there in the first place. They weren't there in the first so place. So literally, the people they pissed off is like the majority of their audience. Uh-huh. Even though... Oh, because like the geophysical people just stayed home. They're like homebodies. Yep. <laughs> they, they just don't go to the IAU meetings. This is so spicy. Yeah. Uh, Please continue. So, so they put it to a vote. Uh, this resulted in a very slight majority ruling uh, in favor of this, this new definition. Uh, by some accounts, it was two to three. By some accounts, it was one to three. Even narrower by others. That's not what the IAU strives for. They want scientific consensus. So the very fact that this was so contended, in the absence of these geophysical scientists, that should have rang some bells. Lots of bells. Uh-huh. Also, the fact that they don't know the actual score. Like, didn't somebody... Hopefully, so. Write it down. I found that really interesting in the paper. They made it a point to mention that there were differing accounts of the of that consensus. Hooey. But yeah. Um and yeah, so scientists, get your shit together. Yeah. And so, the planet definition adopted by the IAU, and one still embraced and put forth on their website to this day. Oh, okay. Uh defines a planet as any celestial body. Wait, wait, stop. Okay, so after all of this drama, this is what came out of it, and this to this day is how we decide what's a planet. It's how they decide what's what's a planet. What's really funny is that the astronomical community has kind of left them behind. Oh, shit. Okay, <laughs> but, so but, but we'll talk about that later. Tell me their rules. What are their rules? Their rules is that a planet is any celestial body that is, one, in orbit around the sun. That's that's direct orbit. Can't be orbiting something orbiting Only the sun. Only our sun? Yep. The sun. the sun is in the working rules. So there can't um, be other planets? That's one thing that a lot of scientists took issue with. But, I take issue uh, two, has sufficient mass for its self-gravity to overcome rigid body forces so that it assumes a nearly round shape. Yeah. Uh, their words is hydrostatic e equilibrium. Big enough to be round. Exactly. Yeah. And three, has cleared the neighborhood around its orbit. The bigger things are in space, the more they pull stuff to them, and so it has to be big enough that, like, it pulled all the stuff to itself to itself. Essentially, that's what Or, like, flung it away. You got it. Yeah. Okay. Pluto... Now failing to meet these new criteria, hey. uh, because it actually <laughs> it actually does travel through Neptune's orbit at certain points, and Neptune is far bigger. Really? Uh-huh. Was designated a dwarf planet, which they also make it a point on, on their website to mention is a new and distinct class of object. Not a planet anymore. That's just mean. Mm -hmm. And the IAU website uh, continues uh, to this day to list the only planets in our solar system as Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune. That's it. Kudos to you for finding the only appropriate way to pronounce... You said Uranus. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got that from the uh, planetary people at the Museum of Science. Wow. That, that's how they say it in the planetarium. And I was Uranus. like, I, I have to go with that because Madison's going to laugh. It's like, your honor? <laughs> <laughs> you managed to laugh anyway. Yeah. Well, that's the planet that is assigned to my star sign. And I was always like, really? My last name's Dix and my planet's Uranus? Really? <laughs> Oh, that's okay, world. Perhaps I should have said your I guess I'll be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, in defense of this formalized definition uh, that prioritized a celestial object's dynamical state, a number of claims have been made by its su supporters. 
both scientific, uh, like this is how astronomers have always viewed planets since the Copernican Revolution, and sociocultural, like the public would never accept a complicated model that significantly increased our planets, our, our solar system's known planets, um, or a planet's dynamical state is the most uh, important aspect that the public needs needs to understand. Yeah, the kids would revolt. They'd be like, I am not memorizing more than nine. No. What's really funny... No, no, I won't say it yet. Um, <laughs> but even as this new formal definition was making its way into textbooks, which, by the way, those textbooks claim that the new definition was formed on the basis of the newest and most updated science... Not true! It was... Formed upon a petty it debate. A, it was a vote. Um, yeah. The lack of true consensus in the adoption of the definition continued to be reflected in the many astronomers that continue to outright reject it, uh, in addition to the authors of this paper. This rejection stems from four main reasons I will quote from the paper. He's quoting. I'm quoting. First, because it does not represent the way that the planetary science community uses the planet concept in actual science. Nope. Second, because it was rushed, and therefore both imprecise and narrowly focused on only one solar system. I'm full of drama. Mm -hmm. And therefore, not useful in science even if it had been aligned with scientific usage. Because yeah. they're just talking about our one solar system. Literally. There's it millions. has to revolve around the sun. The sun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Third, because taxonomical concepts like planet should never be voted upon because taxonomy is a vital part of the, of the scientific process. So having authoritative bodies decide on taxonomy subverts science. Yeah, like, let's let's have a vote right now. Jared, am I a fish? Yes. Yes. Now I'm a fish. <laughs> no, that's not science. Not science. Although I wish it was. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> and fourth, because it represents to the public that taxonomy can be decided by voting, which mm -hmm. undermines their understanding of the scientific process and may undermine their trust in the scientific endeavor, producing long-term harm to science. Indeed. Mm-hmm. From here... We will focus on uh, that first reason against the, the, the new definition. That it, that it does not represent the way that the planetary science community uses the planet concept in actual science. But first, a break from our sponsors. Just kidding. We don't have do Let us now explore how this criticism lines up with the IAU's first tenant of planethood. That it is in direct orbit around the sun. Yeah, that, that one is... I don't like that one because there are other planets in other solar systems mm -hmm. or so i have heard so that's not the part we're taking issue with because that's just uh well that's my opinion <laughs> i also take 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 issue with it but there are it makes it very unuseful for like astrobiologists and stuff it really does it really does um and in, in, in addition to that is all of this okay um so, so like i said uh when the iau states that a planet must be in orbit around the sun they mean directly so that any object orbiting an, another object, like a planet's moons, uh, or sometimes called satellites, which is an, another term for moon, yep. is automatically disqualified from planethood. Yep. But is this interpretation actually one that is dominant in planetary science? What do you think? Gonna guess no. <laughs> a review of the astronomical literature going all the way back to, to the publications of Galileo Galilei himself reveals a resounding N-fucking-O. N-fucking-O. Mm-hmm. GG says no. Gigi says no. So going back to Mr. Galileo himself, uh, when Galileo argued that the sun sat in the center of our solar system and was not actually a planet itself, uh, which was something that was believed by the geocentric view. It's a star. Mm -hmm, he did so by comparing it to the only other celestial bodies he could observe in detail, the Earth and the moon. Yeah, those Ga are the ones. <laughs> exactly. <That was> the <laughs> he didn't have any other tech. Uh, Galileo observed that the then-profound similarities between the Earth's and Moon's geological features 
those mountains and valleys and more, mm -hmm. and determine from these very similarities that earthly geophysics were not actually divine and unique, but shared with this other celestial body. That's right. And mm -hmm. also, some people think the moon came from us. Oh, I think that's true. Yeah, I was like, well, I, I think Might there's be. debate. Okay, so there's debate. Yes. <laughs> um, and later argued uh, on the basis of opaqueness and the and the reflecting of, of, of stellar light that these properties were also shared by the less observable planets mm -hmm. and not the sun. Facts! You can see them reflecting light. You can see them do it. So here's the thing. Galileo's entire argument hinged on the moon being in the same class of, of celestial body as the Earth. The fact that it didn't technically orbit the sun itself was of no consequence, and downgrading the moon uh, from planet status based on this slight difference in, in orbital state would have only served to hurt his argument. I agree with him there, because, I mean, if I, it, have you read uh, Goldilocks and the Water Bears? What? No. Oh, it's a really cool book <laughs> about astrobiology. Oh. <laughs> and, it, you know, it talks about how, like, one of Jupiter's moons is maybe the most likely candidate in our solar system to have some forms of life on it. Oh, we're going to talk a little about that later. Okay, cool. Kinda. So, like, that would be, like, if it's a planet, it's a planet. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But Jared, you, you might be thinking. But Jared, I am thinking. <laughs> Galileo may may have labeled the moon as a planet, but surely this must have changed in, in, in the centuries onward, right? Wrong! From the 1600s all the way up to 1920, uh, we'll get to why it stopped at this point in a little bit, our moon and the many moons discovered orbiting other planets o over the years were damn near unanimously classified as planets based on their shared geophysical properties, oh. which were expanded upon more and more in detail as those years went on. Now, this is not to say that dynamical states were of no importance. They were, just to, to a lesser degree. So it's more about, like, you're big and you're round than you you go around the sun. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, this is reflected in, in the adoption of primary planet and secondary planet. Uh, secondary sometimes being switched out for satellite or moon, but still still having the uh, same 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 meaning. Fair. Planetary body. Yeah. Indeed. And they also make it make it a point to mention that primary and secondary planets are both planets. They don't make that line in the sand the IAU makes. I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. I like to be inclusive. Exactly. You can think about it, uh, this subdivision of uh, dynamical state, uh, in, in, in the same way that a species of organism is sometimes divided in, into multiple subspecies. But that yeah. same broader level classification stays exactly the same. There are seven different species of Galapagos tortoise on the Galapagos, but they're all Galapagos tortoise. Mm-hmm. Exactly. With very few exceptions, very, very few exceptions, uh, there has never been any disagreement on this point. The geophysical taxonomy of planets has always been of, of primary importance, and having greater explanatory power than taxonomy prioritizing dynamics. Yeah. Even as the years went on, I'm even no as a dynamicist. I thank you. Back. <laughs> thank you. Even as the years went on, even as the tally of discovered planets shot up into the triple digits, there's over 200 moons in our solar system, and those are planets. Uh, so what about the other dynamical component of, of the IAU's planet definition? That a planet must quote-unquote clear its own orbit. Some astronomers, in support of that definition, claim that there is historical precedence in adding orbit clearing, because astronomers of the 1800s stopped considering asteroids as planets when they found a group of 15 sharing similar orbits. Yeah, but they're also lumpy and not round and, like, planetary looking, so they're disqualified anyway. Here's another thing. When our authors looked to the literature, they found that this 1800 deciding straight up did not happen. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, historical precedent for science? Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Come on. It is true that asteroids are, are not regarded as planets, but this shift in thought actually occurred in the 1960s, and for actual <laughs> pragmatic reasons related not to dynamics, but geophysics. 
To lumpiness. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, I want to talk about Geophysics, also to... known as lumpiness. Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about this so bad, but I'll just get into it later. Okay. In the same way that orbiting a star directly or indirectly was never really in the same tier of importance as geophysics in discussing planets, neither has the entire clearing of an object's orbit been a primary concern. In fact, the earliest use I can find of that term is like 2000. It's a stupid rule. It's a stupid rule. Both of these dynamical requirements should have disappeared from the IOU's planet definition if it truly reflected scientific advancement. Not only should Pluto have retained its planetary status, but the 200 plus moons of our solar system should have joined it. There you go. Oh, but then the kids. Fuck the kids. Space is messy. Never fuck the kids. Don't fuck the kids. Isn't it so important, though, that we teach the public that space is messy and that's okay? Like, there's just so much shit going on up there. Yeah. And there's other reasons, too, that, we'll, that we're, 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 we're about to get into. I mean, kids could still learn that the nine planets are the main ones. Yeah, we, 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 we can talk about the primary planets, and, and kids can know those, can and we can talk about the secondary them. planets. And then later, they can be like, hey, it's also really crowded, and look at all of these other yeah. things swollen around there. They're also planets, we just didn't tell you about them before, because your brains were tiny. Exactly. You memorized nine planets. Exactly. As long as they understand their planets, it's I don't the, need the, them to memorize all yeah, 200. That's just not necessary. It's a really common model in education. We teach things simplistically, and then we introduce the complex as kids get older and they have more of a capacity for understanding more complex concepts. Exactly. So it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. And what about the second part of, of the IU's definition? That a planet must have sufficient mass that its own gravitational pull turns it around it. Well, that's just BMI bullshit. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so this geophysical component is actually the only part of the IU definition that finds support in the literature. But even still, it fails to fully encapsulate the modern understanding of what makes a planet. We will return to a complete modern view of planets in just a little bit. But first... A break from our sponsors. A break from our sponsors. <laughs> also, we should really talk about how it is that a planet's dynamical state became so important in the eyes of much of the astronomical community, and what exactly led to the stripping of moons slash satellites slash secondaries of planetary status without any actual basis in science. Huh, are, is this just like people projecting their issues about categorizing other people onto planets? Kinda. Before we get through there, can I go pee real quick? Yeah, I actually have to pee too. Okay, cool. <laughs> but first, a break from our bladders. A break from our bladders. <laughs> and we're back. And we're back. We go now to the early to mid-1800s, when the geophysical heliocentric, aka Copernican model, of our solar system finally began to gain visibility to the general public. So That's like, a 200-year lag so between like when the scientists were talking about it. maybe half of the people were like, yeah, I'm pretty sure we revolve around the sun. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Comparing the scientific literature uh, to the public literature as, as a whole, Ugh. because again, there's no scientific reason why the, 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 why the moon was downgraded. I mean, our public literature still says the Earth is flat in some places. Yeah. So. Also, we begin to see a folk taxonomy, one that accepted the, sun's, uh, the sun as our solar system's center, but rejecting satellites and asteroids as planets directly competing with the Copernican taxonomy to, to win over the public. Wanting to also, special. people were still fighting the geophysical one, too. So people just want to be special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, this folk taxonomy was informed by two majorly influential groups of that time, the Catholic Church and the astrological community. Well, one of those I'm on board with. <laughs> Guess which one, listeners? The astro... The, the astro the, the... I said listeners. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You can't tell I'm a heathen by now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So the central claim of astrology uh, is that the orbital positions of our solar system's planets in relation to Earth, um, and sometimes based on the uh, person teaching it, the position of the Earth itself, have profound influence on the emotions and behaviors of humans uh, due to oh. mystical influences of those planets affecting us in unique ways. Like when Mercury's in Gatorade. Gatorade, yeah. <laughs> um, out of necessity, astrology relies on, on the number of these planets being low and orderly. So astrologers can maintain that each heavenly body attributes its own and unique effects on us. So this is one of my main issues with astrology is they only go with the planets that are named. Mm -hmm. And like, have you heard of how big the universe is? Oh, it's so big. It's so <laughs> like, big. you think that you can predict things based on nine planets? Additionally, the adoption of satellites uh, or secondaries as planets into the astrological folklore would have only served to hurt and undermine it. Since secondaries take the same orbital path around the sun as their primaries. They sure do. And so they, they would not be able to relay their own unique astrological energies to the Earth. Yeah, how does Io affect my love life? Exactly. Io is one of Jupiter's moons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the ice one, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's my love life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Now, lining up the astrological literature to the astronomical, we see there are actually a few exceptions of secondaries and asteroids making their way into astrological charts. Uh, but oh, they, really? were, they were mainly just listed, not giving any actual powers or influences. They were just like, these are there. I would love to try to make like an astrological system that takes into account all of like the 200 planetary body oh, it would be, bodies in our solar system. Oh, it would be so chaotic. I would love it. Oh, my, and I love chaos. Maybe I'll do it. <laughs> Maybe I'll be famous. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> The fact remains that uh, there were some astrological catalogs that, that were keeping up with the planets as they were being discovered, but they were in the extreme minority. Yeah, okay. Although astrology is well known for absorbing new information. I mean, what we know as quote-unquote Western astrology is a combination of Greek astrology, Roman astrology, Mayan astrology, Chinese astrology. It's all over the place, and it's very, like, pick and choose. It is a, it is a cool thing to study, but um, it is not science. No. Um, yeah, yes, exactly. Um, but as a whole, uh, taking these exceptions in mind, and especially as, as the number of discovered secondaries and asteroids made their way up into the upper double digits, the simpler model simply won out. Um, and to this day, astrology <laughs> considers only the primary planets in their mystical divinations. Correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. in, but including Pluto. Including Pluto. Because mm -hmm. fuck the IAU, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and also, like, they say, they always say, like, it's ancient. And I'm like, Pluto was discovered in 1930. Mm -hmm. Now, because I just learned that. <laughs> <laughs> so at the same time that the um, Copernican taxonomy was competing with the much simpler model of astrology, the church, uh, arguably a stronger influence, also had to give its two cents. Because in the eyes of the, because in the eyes of the church, the divine uniformity of the, of the orbits of those primary planets served as a reminder of the orderliness of our universe. It is not orderly. No. Uh, and this orderliness, of of course, could have only come about as the result of a divine creator. Um, unfortunately for science, uh, the emerging understanding that space is actually messy as hell um, was completely at odds with this divine orderliness. I ascribe um, to messy universe theory, thank you very yeah, much. We actually find so some records of um, them trying to explain away comets and asteroids as uh, indications of our sin. They're oh, just yeah. representations of our sin, and that's no, why they're so messy. They literally, they've caused huge, like global like societal events mm -hmm. uh but yeah because this was completely at odds with divine orderliness uh the church's influence essentially merged with that of the astrological community to cloud the science 
And even more unfortunately, at the very same time that these competing taxonomies were duking it out, astronomers were failing to communicate this very, very far more complex view of, of the solar system to non-scientists, or why the Copernican taxonomy was e even important. Our perpetual struggle. Uh-huh. So people of this time were basically only receiving, vast majority of people only received their primary education, uh, and were not taught planetary science at all. Also, a primary education at that time was like, learn these Latin classics, um, learn about God. <laughs> like <laughs> There was no talk of planets. It was, yeah, it was very religious. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, uh, the usage, distribution, and popularity of almanacs exploded. And I mean exploded during this time. They became the most popular form of media. Mm -hmm. um, the vast majority of which giving the astrological perspective of planets. And of course, uh, the church's influence was pushing against the science as well. Uh, public records clearly show the folk taxonomy winning out over the Copernican uh, by, by the 1860s and remaining dominant into the present day. Yeah. Yep. Um, one could say that possibly an inherent part of our psychology to feel safe and want safety in the cosmos was also responsible for this, but... For sure. Regardless, it happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's... It's a similar story when you talk about evolution. Oh, it took hundreds of years. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. St it's still an issue. Yeah. Uh, and it is that feeling of safety and comfort and people want to see order and want to recognize their place in a world that makes sense. And I'm sorry, y'all. It's not going to make sense. I take comfort in the messy. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. I'm like, I'm chaotic. The world is chaotic. I am one with the universe. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, if you'll recall from earlier, uh, the scientific treatment of moons slash satellites as planets remained essentially entirely unchanged, uh, all the way from the 1600s to about 1920. Mm -hmm. um, so planetary dynamics were never of primary importance. Analysis of, of the literature shows that there was zero empirical reasoning, no scientific basis for this change at all that uh, occurred after the, after, the plan, after the moons were dropped of their planetary status. Yeah. So looking only at the scientific literature, it would appear that this just sort of happened. <laughs> Um, in the absence Never of Never a good sign <laughs> in yeah. the scientific literature when something just happens with no explanation. Exactly. So in the absence of any science, really the only logical explanation uh, that can be reached is that the folk taxonomy was eventually able to weasel its way into astronomy. Uh, That's the only way it could have happened. It must be. I mean, and that does make sense because the folk are the people. Exactly. And people who are interested in planets are going to dip a toe in astrology, and it's going to color their understanding of the planets. Exactly. Especially when scientists are failing to, to communicate what planets are and why it's important to see them that way. Scientists, communicate better, please. Mm -hmm. Or I guess you don't have to. That's what we're here for. Yeah. <laughs> Talking ourselves out of a job. You're right. We get paid <laughs> so much. <laughs> we get paid in praise. Um, as for how this happened, how this adoption of folk taxonomy was allowed to happen, um, our authors point to a major trend in the astronomical literature that they dub the Great Depression... <laughs> the Great Depression. The Great Depression of Planetary Science. Or the GDPS. Oh, wow. There was a Great Depression of Planetary Science? And it also happened during the Great Depression. <laughs> I was about to guess it was like the 1990s. Because yep. that's what I was like, ooh, 17 says. <laughs> <laughs> so the GDPS, the Great Depression in Planetary Science, occurred between 1910 and 1955. Oh, it was longer than the actual Great Depression. Oh, yeah. Um, during of which uh, the research and publish of and publishing of, of papers on planetary science reached an all-time low. Hmm. Um, our authors were not able to determine exactly why this happened. I'm gonna say it's because we were embattled in two world wars and then a bunch of other wars and you know uh, domestic conflicts uh, on our own soil as well. Um, and so probably the only science that could get published was science that 
pertained to that. That's probably a big part of it. Um, the authors weren't able to... Speaking to, as to, an uh, expert. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that is a big part of it. The authors weren't able to find like a unifying reason, but it was probably a lot of factors, including, uh, you know, world wars. Yeah. Those happen. Uh, the Great Depression itself, uh, proper slashing funding of scientific research. Yeah. And also to a general loss of excitement and drive to keep discovering and keep describing new planets, since there were already so many at that time. And the technology of that time didn't allow for very much study of uh, those planets compared to other uh, then more exciting aspects of, of astronomy. Until the 1960s when Russia was like, we're going to go to the moon. And then the U.S. was like, wait a minute. <laughs> there you go. That's yeah. exactly what happened. Always political. Whatever fa uh, combination of factors caused this GDPS to occur, its consequences are now quite clear. Uh, in the absence of planetary science discourse, there was just, no one was talking about it either. Um, the folk taxonomy slowly but surely begun to take its place. And by 1920, textbooks had already begun to abandon the idea of satellites as planets, as they awarded that title only to the primaries, with no actual change in science. They were like, keep it simple. I don't know. Yeah, that's basically what happened. Um, You're the... all going to die in a war anyway. There's nine planets. <laughs> Jesus. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's my impression of the 1920s. Yeah, I mean, just like sort of falls out of the public mindset. I was about to give an example of something that's fallen out of our mindset, but I don't know what it is because it's fallen it. out of my mindset. Exactly. Oh, like, <laughs> I don't know, those hats that are like beanies that also have a brim? Yeah, man. Those are gone. Whatever those are. Good riddance. They're gone. <laughs> so, uh, as Madison already alluded to, uh, the age of space ex exploration dramatically reignited interest in planetary science in, in the 1960s. That was also when, when asteroids and comets, comets were downgraded the planet for actually pragmatic reasons. Wait, what happened? Asteroids and comets were downgraded to planet. From planet. Oh, okay, there we go. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but unfortunately, by that point, the damage was already done. Uh, satellites and secondaries were now fundamentally different than, than primary planets uh, to many a non-planetary astronomer. Yeah. Non-planetary is important because planetary, planetary astronomy never really dropped the concept of moons as planets. Yeah, they were like, these are all planets, you guys can do whatever you want, but we're going to be over here doing science. Mm -hmm. And those non-planetary astronomers also fell victim to the historical presentism fallacy and just sort of subconsciously decided that this is the way things have always been since, since the start of the Copernican Revolution. Which is how people always... Any, any person who plops into the world, they're like, it's always been this way. Mm -hmm. that's, that's how people be. That's how do. people be. That's how people be. <laughs> Had the IAU not ordered its planetary definition committee to, to deliberate in secret up until they were revealed at that 2006 General Assembly, it's possible that at least some of these issues might have come to light. Um, and the scientific train wreck of a debate that came afterwards may have been avoided. Nonetheless, the fact remains that the planet definition that the IAU stands by to this day is rooted not in any advancement of scientific understanding, but the infusion of astrological and religious folklore where it does not belong. So, like, do we even stand the IAU anymore? I never want... That, that was you, bro. I never once stand the IAU. <laughs> You're right. I stand them for a minute there. Um, but <laughs> Don't pull me into this. <laughs> I'm dropping them. Like, I, I was on board at first. Sounded like a cool gang of, of dudes um, <laughs> and dudettes. But now, no. No. But, you know, it's not too late to rectify this mistake, uh, which the IAU can accomplish by embracing a planet definition that reflects true scientific understanding. Which would be? Well, that's actually pretty lucky for them, is that one such definition already exists. Because, you know, the uh, astronom astronomical community did leave them behind. There we go. Um, 
Because they were a working group slash task force, mm -hmm. and nobody likes those. Exactly. So uh, the new research possibilities and analytical tools of the 1960s and beyond led to an immensely greater understanding of the diversity of geophysical properties that begin to appear right as an object becomes rounded by its own gravity. Which is like a cool moment. Exactly. When a celestial body reaches this critical point in mass, a massive, complicated mess of changes can begin to occur, including increased tectonic activity, the formation of things like oceans, retention of an atmosphere, magnetic fields, radiation belts, and this diversity of processes is exponentially greater than what is known to be able to occur in smaller, unrounded objects like asteroids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is the actual insight that downgraded asteroids from, from planetary status. Yes, that I'm on board with this. Exactly. That profound increase in geophysical diversity induced by gravitational rounding created a scientifically meaningful boundary between unrounded asteroids and comets and the smallest rounded true planets. Defining planets by their geophysical diversity also allows for an upper limit as well, because at a certain point in size and mass, that planet will eventually start to go un undergo nuclear fusion. Exactly. It'll start to basically like ex implode on itself and create a ton of energy and heat. Become and a star. That's what we call a star. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the immense heat caused by that fusion drastically limits the geophysical diversity that, that can exist on that now star. Yeah. I, I, this is probably not related, but I always... The reason that sticks in my brain is because also as organisms get larger, they're able to retain heat better. Mm -hmm. So that's how I remember it. That tracks. I like that. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the first step towards a rightly geophysical definition of what makes a planet came in 1991, when an influential astronomer defined planets uh, by three categories. One, as directly orbiting the sun or some other star. So this is the this is the guy that the dynamicists at that uh, meeting formed their um, heat definition on, and for some reason they decided to forget to mention that he even said another star. So just that. <laughs> so he didn't even save the sun. No. <laughs> um, B be massive enough that gravity exceeds its material strength, uh, so that the bulk object is in that e uh, higher static e equilibrium. It be round. It it be round exactly. But C not be so massive that it generates energy through through nuclear fusion. But of course, we have since learned that the perceived orbit uh, in, in importance of dynamical state is rooted in folklore. So that part's got to be dropped. Yep. Uh, this dropping of part A uh, actually occurred in 2017. With another recent. Very recent. With another influential paper pushing back against the IAU's influence by defining planets as one, substellar mass bodies, that's non-suns, uh, that have never undergone nuclear fusion, and two, that have self-sufficient gravitation to be round due to hydrostatic equilibrium, regardless of its orbital parameters. Eh. Mm -hmm. So here's the kicker. Uh, the publishing of this 2017 paper is really quite remarkable, considering that the authors themselves were completely unaware of the degree of historical presentism and the adoption of non-scientific folk taxonomy that had taken hold over so many of their colleagues. Oh, poor babies. Uh-huh. They were also unaware that their insights actually followed the very same inherently geophysical reasoning that had been built on ever since the publishing of Galileo's initial insights. After all, how could they have known this? It was a direct result of the more recent historical analyses of our current paper that brought those details to light. Yeah. Therefore, the 2017 revision of the planet taxonomy represents the astronomical community coming full circle to re-embrace geophysics as the defining property of planets. You go. Mm-hmm and provides yet another example of the inherent scientific usefulness of taxonomy rooted in geophysical properties over dynamical. Stay home, don't go to the conference, 
it'll come around to your side in a hundred years or so. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so if the IAU truly believes that the way that they define planets is is a reflection of scientific advancements, they need to stop ignoring the calls to action from the growing number of astronomers that rightfully left that folk taxonomy behind and adopt this latest definition of planets that is actually genuinely useful as a taxonomical concept and the way that planets are actually treated in planetary astronomy. Yes. Mm -hmm. I will end this discussion with a direct quote from this episode's paper, because I think that they really do sum up their own argument quite nicely. And Jared quotes. And Jared quotes. <laughs> he doth quot. Title of this episode? <laughs> Jared doth quot. <laughs> I really wanted this to be Astrology Kill Pluto, but... Okay, like, or maybe like one of those, like, kind of like a trashy, like, Pluto unveiled. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we'll workshop it. Oh, I like that. <laughs> um, but now for this quote. Okay. The natural emergence of complexity for a sufficiently large body appears through a series of abrupt transitions and is therefore not just an arbitrary boundary like the wavelength we choose to separate reddish-purple from purplish-red. It matters. Um, things occur in, in, in the middle size range of condensates, that's science speak for space stuff, Yeah. Uh, that do not occur anywhere else in the universe. And they include the most important things in the universe to us. Geology, mineralogy, complex chemistry, biology, ecology, history, economics, art, literature, technology, and all the mental activity and dreams of intelligent beings. Those are the most important things to us, yeah. Mm -hmm. The fact that this set of transitions exists, and that it can exist only in a specific range of condensates in space, is inherently worthy of discussion, and demands a taxonomical category. It does! It's very special that we're here talking to y'all, who we don't know, about this stuff, that we're able to do that, and part of the reason we're able to do that is because we're on a planet. Mm-hmm. Also, so, the idea of planets not as fucking described by their orbits, but as these engines of geophysical complexity is just badass. Yes, it is. Although it's, we're getting unscientific here. But. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. Exactly. I am a human being, not a human doing. That is a planet being, not a planet doing. Exactly. With great power comes the ability to reclassify Pluto as a planet. You are still a person, even if you can't get off the couch. Motivation. I mean, you are still a planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm with it. Yeah. Uh, so, not to say, like, fuck the IAU, because I hope they listen to this, but... I hope they listen, get... and I hope they're mad. Yeah, get your shit together, guys. I hope they're angry. <laughs> I hope they add us. Oh, yeah, IAU. Add us. Yeah. Yeah. Or friends or enemies of the a a a, a of them. <laughs> Hopefully the enemies, because I find the them more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably stop. I guess we should. Yeah. Um, Bye.